as we pick up where Will left off, as we sit in this tension, as we focus on some of the aspects that we don't like to focus on, and if we spent time getting into the gruesome nature of which we are now picturing and visualizing Jesus is going through, as he's going through this for you and for me and for all humanity, uh, it's tough and it's difficult. And that's okay. Uh, it's good to think through these things. And so as we now start to look at his death, death isn't something we like to talk about. Death isn't something we really focus on. And especially when we now know the truth and, and we see the reality of what Jesus did, it's glorious. But at this moment, picture yourself as a follower of Jesus at this time. And from a distance, or maybe you can't even see what's happening, or, or you've already run because you're scared they're coming after you next. But you're watching this take place. We'll pick it back up in Luke 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. It was hard to understand at the time, but here in his death, one of the things we now see is his death was love. His death was love. It was gruesome to watch. Uh, some authors believe that his death wasn't caused by the physical things that happened to him, but his death was caused because as he took your sin and my sin on his shoulders, someone who for all eternity has been holy and in the presence of God, as he took our sin upon himself, this shock to the system, if you will, is what actually broke his heart and killed him. As we look in other gospels, we see that Pilate was surprised and others were surprised at how quickly he died. And I think it is at that moment where he, he feels the, the sin of the world for all of time past and future come onto his holy and perfect heart as the separation happens between him and the Father because he is no longer holy as he takes your sin and my sin upon himself. And other uh, gospels tell us that when he, uh, when he had said this, he breathed his last, that it was this loud, anguishing cry as he dies. His death was love. So what does it mean or what does it, what does it mean for those that were there and for us today? And I think for those that were there and those that are watching this, this brought about a, an unbelievable fear. This brought about anxiety, the anxiety that we've just been talking about. As you think of it, you've followed Jesus and you've seen him heal you. I think of Mary Magdalene who had uh, seven demons removed from her. Uh, you think of these people whose lives had been changed dramatically, the disciples who followed him the, as John was there and, and watching this happen with 
his mother and with Jesus' mother and his confusion. Thoughts of failure. What did we just do? Who did we just align ourselves with? What happens next? However, for us today, we should be filled with an unbelievable sense of thankfulness. We should be filled with uh, the understanding that he took our punishment, what he allowed himself to go through, was for you and for me. That he took our punishment. And in taking our punishment, he gave us freedom. You see, his death was the extreme cost for our sin. To have just been beaten, to have just been having a crown of thorns placed upon his head, to have just been crucified, it wasn't enough. Our sin caused his death. His death demonstrated, as Ephesians 3 says, how wide and Long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ had to go through this. It was part of the process of you and I being able to have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Was was Him taking our punishment. There had to be punishment. Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 5 starting in verse 6. You see at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to, uh, wherever you are right now, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, I want you to take some time and meditate. I'm going to read a part of the book Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland, which is a book I cannot recommend enough. But in, the, in this book, and I want you to, again, close your eyes and think through what is being told to us here. What we're seeing in this passage in Christ's death, what we're seeing in Romans chapter 5. And I want you to think through what Dane Ortland is writing. He writes, God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious, assessing our worth. That is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone. In defiance of what we deserved, When we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world, repulsed by the beauty of God and shutting up our ears at his calls to come home, it was then, 
in the hollowed-out horror of that revolting existence that the Prince of Heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of these very rebels in a divine strategy planned from eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. Christ went down into death. Voluntary endurance of unutterable anguish. Well, we applauded. We couldn't have cared less. We were weak, sinners, enemies. It was only after the fact, only once the Holy Spirit came flooding into our hearts, that the realization swept over us. He walked through my death. And he didn't simply die, he was condemned. He didn't simply leave heaven for me, he endured hell for me. He, not deserving to be condemned, absorbed it in my place. I, who alone deserved it. That is his heart. And into our empty souls, like a glass of cold water to a thirsty mouth, God poured his Holy Spirit to internalize the actual experience of God's love. What was the purpose of this heavenly rescue mission? God shows his love for us. The Greek word for shows here means to commend demonstrably, to hold forth, to bring into clear view, to put beyond questioning. In Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts of him and our chronic insistence that divine love must have an endpoint, a limit, a point at which it finally runs dry. Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. He died to prove that God's love is, as Jonathan Edward puts it, an ocean without shores or bottom. God's love is as boundless as God himself. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks of divine love as a reality that stretches to an immeasurable breadth and length and height and depth. The only thing in the universe as immeasurable as that is God himself. God's love is as expansive as God himself. For God to cease to love his own, God would need to cease to exist. Because God does not simply have love, he is love. In the death of Christ for us sinners, God intends to put his love for us beyond question. As we move into his burial, read Luke 23, starting in verse 50 with me. Now there was a man named Joseph a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. His burial, it was always part of the plan. Jesus' death and burial was always part of the plan. 
Think about how fast things have changed for Jesus' followers at this point. The previous Sabbath, although it isn't recorded, Jesus would have spent it more than likely and with his friends, possibly Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his disciples. The Sabbath is this time to not just have a day off, but this time to focus on God. This day where your focus is on the Lord. And one week you're celebrating the Sabbath with your friend, your teacher, the one that you believe is the Son of God, the Messiah. Think of that for a moment. Spending your Sabbath with Jesus. Listening to his teaching, talking with him as a friend. Side note, I believe that's how your Sabbath is supposed to be. The next day, as we celebrated last week, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. And you're celebrating him as king, as the Messiah. And now, less than a week later, the following Sabbath, your best friend has been viciously murdered and crucified. You've watched him die. You've watched the Romans put a spear in his side and realize that he has already died. The Sabbath is coming up and here we see Joseph and he goes and asks Pilate for the body and he's granted. And uh, Joseph, when it says part of the, a member of the council, he was a, another Pharisee. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea, more than likely, was a very wealthy man. And now here is a wealthy man. And another gospel tells us that Nicodemus is helping him, that we met in John chapter 4. They're lowering this gruesome, what was left of a man, down from a cross. And they start preparing him to go into the grave. Think about what is going on, again, as, as putting yourself there, we have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who I'm sure we're just going through this extreme confusion. Uh, John chapter 3, uh, John 3.16 that we all know so well, that is um, Jesus explaining what it is to know him. Nicodemus has heard this talk of being born again from Jesus. And, and now he's there going, I, be I believed in this guy and now he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea, as Pharisees, they would have known the Old Testament scriptures through and through. And they seem to now be following after Jesus, and yet they're wrapping his body knowing that he was dead. The women, I see them as having extreme sadness. They go home and the preparation day was trying to get everything done in advance before sundown and Sabbath began. And they're getting their spices together. They're getting everything they need so that as soon as they can on daybreak of Sunday morning, they can go to the tomb and finish the burial process. And then I think of the disciples who I'm sure like Joseph and Nicodemus, there was extreme confusion who, like the women, there was extreme sadness, but also as a disciple, as somebody who you have now for three years been following with Jesus, you were known as one of his own, his, his leadership team, if you will. I'm sure there was extreme fear because are they coming for me next? And we see this when they're hiding in an upper room. They don't know what's going to happen next. The fear and anxiety that would have gripped them at this time. You see, for them, Everything seemed hopeless. But starting the next day, 
Starting that Sunday morning, there was an eternal hope present, not just for them, but for you and I. That eternal hope is what now we've been tasked with to bring that eternal hope to our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and our fellow students and wherever it is that you are, that eternal hope is what we live out. You see, all of their hope seemed completely lost. For us, we always have hope, an eternal hope that was promised long ago and that we celebrate today. It was always part of the plan. They didn't understand what we know now. Jesus had to take our sins to the grave as part of the process of forgiving them. In Psalm 103 that we'll read in a minute, we see that is how they are separated from God. That is how our sins have been removed. That is how Jesus died. His blood covered our sins. He took our sins upon his shoulders and when he died, he took them to the grave. And when he rose again, he left them there. This goes back to the curse in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 said that Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. Understand, Satan and his followers on this day, they are rejoicing. They think they've won. Not realizing that this was part of their defeat. That Jesus would have the ultimate victory. I love the old hymn uh, named One Day. The chorus goes, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away, rising, he justified, freely forever, one day he's coming, oh glorious day. As we move into this next section of meditation, again, I want you to just think through these first 18 verses of Psalm 103. If you can, close your eyes. Think on this scripture that uh, I am reading. David writes, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. 
The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children and with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. I want to move into the greatest part. The last part that we will cover. His resurrection. Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus is who he said he is. Pick up in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. I'll read that again because I couldn't hear you say amen. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. I can't imagine, as we try to put ourselves in their place, I can't imagine what that was like. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw, as we read earlier, the women saw Joseph and they saw Nicodemus preparing the body. They knew he was dead. They saw him lay it in the, this cave or this grave. I don't know if they knew that they then rolled this massive stone in front to seal it off. But they get there and there is men with clothes like lightning. Their immediate response is to put their faces in the ground to hide themselves. And they are told, He has risen. Not that His body was taken, but that He got up and left. I've heard many people say that Jesus could have come out of the tomb easily through the rock. He could have done what He wants. We see Him pass through walls after this a couple different times. He moved the stone so that they could look in. He moved the stone so that Peter could see that the strips of linen lying there. I would encourage you to read the different accounts in the four different Gospels because in John, John tells us uh, one, that he was with Peter, but also that he beat Peter. He was faster than Peter on his way there. They were wondering to themselves what had happened. I love the angels telling them, remember he told you this in Galilee? He said this was going to happen. And I love it. <laughs> Then they remembered his words. But see, at this time, women couldn't actually um, be witnesses in a court of law. 
uh, they were viewed as unpredictable. And so you couldn't count on their eyewitness accounts. So when they come back and they're explaining this, they weren't believed. His resurrection accomplished what no one else had ever done or could ever do. Jesus defeated sin and death, offering new life for any who call on his name. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His resurrection was the living proof that he was who he said he was. Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who, the spirit, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was exactly who he said he was. So what does this mean for you and for me? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12, Paul writes, But it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Understand that this is the basis of our faith. If Christ doesn't rise from the dead, he is just like any other good spiritual being that has existed. They all died. Christ rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, he defeated sin and he defeated death. The basis of our faith, the basis of why we do everything that we do is based on the fact, and I, yes, I use the word fact, that he rose again. There's an author who uh, wrote that the first 100 to 150 years after the resurrection, nobody challenged the resurrection. They came after maybe other ideas about it, but because there were so many eyewitnesses of the resurrection that challenging the resurrection in itself was worthless because too many people were eyewitnesses to it. Over 500 people were eyewitnesses to Jesus after he rose from the dead. There was no challenging it. 150 years later, generations later, then they could start. 
But for that first generation of the church, nobody challenged the resurrection of Jesus. So I've taken this from an author that I use regularly, John MacArthur. I want you to think through what this means for us. The basic truth of the resurrection undergirds a number of other truths. And there's six of them. Truth number one, it gives evidence that the word of God is totally true and reliable. Jesus rose again precisely when and in the way he had predicted it. What Jesus said came true. The word of God is reliable. The word of God is truth. Truth number two, the resurrection means that Jesus Christ is the son of God as he claimed to be and that he has power over life and death. Going back to our main point for this section, he is who he said he was. The great I am, Jehovah. He is the great I am. Truth number three, the resurrection proves that salvation is complete. That on the cross, Christ conquered sin, death, and hell, and he rose victorious. Truth number four, the resurrection proves that the church has been established. Jesus had declared, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Matthew chapter 16, his resurrection proved that death itself could not prevent Christ from establishing his church, the body and bride of Christ. Truth number five, the resurrection proves that judgment is coming. Jesus declared that the heavenly father has given all judgment to the son in John chapter five. And since the son is now risen and alive, his judgment is certain. And truth number six, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that heaven is waiting. Jesus promised, in my house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, that's recorded in John chapter 14. This is one of the many things that Jesus told. And John started in chapter 13 going all the way through. These are the last week of Jesus' life. Nobody recorded more in the Gospels, more than John of that last week of what he's sharing with his disciples. And he's telling them, I go and prepare a place for you, that there is eternal life and that when we put our faith in him, when we make Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, we have this eternal life. Because Christ is alive by the resurrection, believers have the assurance that he is now preparing a heavenly dwelling for them. So you go into this time of meditation as we close out. Staying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what I want to leave you with, 
when we stop and we pause and we meditate, we think through all that Jesus has accomplished for us. His trials, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He did this for you and I so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have eternal life, but that we can have freedom, that we can have the Holy Spirit indwell us so that we can go, stand firm, always be doing the work of the Lord, always, always be doing everything for His glory, pointing people to the work that Jesus accomplished when He defeated sin and death so that all the glory goes to God. As we are ambassadors of this reconciliation that if you are a believer in Him, you have experienced, our mission is to be that ambassador to bring other people into that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for your unbelievable, unmeasurable love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he endured the punishment that we so deserve, that he endured that for us. That he brought our sins to the grave so that we no longer have to pay the price for him. But Lord, that he rose again that you demonstrated your power over sin and death so that anyone who calls on your name will be saved. Lord, I pray that if there's people that are watching or listening to this right now, that you would work in their hearts, that if they've never done this, that they would call out to you. That they would believe that you are exactly who you said you are. Lord, for those that do know you, I, my prayer is that, that we continue to live as people who have been freed from sin and death. That we would live with a mission of pointing people to you, that they would experience the freedom and the forgiveness and the joy and the peace and the love that only you can provide, that only you can provide in such a way that it surpasses all knowledge and comprehension. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.